The following message is made available for you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emanuelmora.com. Uh, Pontius Pilate is not someone that you would typically uh, consider ahead of his time. He was the governor of the Judean uh, region at the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the Apostle John, he records this conversation between Pilate and Jesus in which Pilate utters this philosophical question uh, that, that uh, dominates our culture today. The Jews had accused Jesus of claiming to be their king, which would be viewed as a seditious act uh, against the Roman Empire. And in the course of the conversation, Jesus puts Pilate into this philosophical box that, that Pilate has, has no concept of how to deal with what Jesus said. In uh, John chapter 18, Jesus says this to Pilate. He says, I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate's response then puts him way ahead of his time. He asks the question, he says, what is truth? He's taking Jesus' response to a whole other level. Where Jesus was talking about a specific truth, uh, you know, he says the truth, he puts on, on the word the. Uh, Pilate straight up goes existential here. He doesn't ask what the truth is, but he asks what, what truth is in general. And now more than ever, we live in a time uh, in which we're asking the same question. Uh, we live in a, in a time uh, and, and we're questioning what is truth in an era of conspiracy theories and fake news. What is truth in an era of technological deepfakes? Uh, what is truth uh, when the things that we're seeing and we're watching, we don't know if they're, if they're real or not? Or if there may be propaganda from one side or the other. What is truth in a time when someone might say what is true for you isn't necessarily true for me? What is truth when everything right now in our culture is up for debate? What is truth in augmented reality? And what is real, what isn't? It's, it's confusing. Uh, it is frustrating and it's overwhelming. And the, the same sentiments hit one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, his name was Thomas. He was the pessimistic one. He's often known as Doubting Thomas, but that's not a really a fair title. Uh, because he was uh, a very loyal apostle. And in fact, he was the first apostle to uh, cling to Jesus and was willing to die uh, for Jesus and with Jesus. Um, and so here on the first Easter... Thomas was not with the other disciples. Now, I'm totally speculating here on why, but it seems reasonable to me that Thomas, after Jesus was crucified, would want to go and spend some serious alone time. Because everything that he had known, everything that he had put his entire life into, was now sitting in a tomb. He had given everything up for Jesus. He had believed that Jesus would restore all things. And now... He's dead and gone. Everything he thought to be true was now in question. So on the first Easter Sunday, all the disciples, minus Thomas, were together. They were locked in a room 
because they were afraid that what happened to Jesus would happen to them, that they would be arrested and, and, uh, and prosecuted, essentially being persecuted. And it was in that room where Jesus just showed up. He showed them his hands and feet, and they rejoiced. Jesus rose from the dead, and it's here that we pick up in our text this morning, in John chapter 20, starting in verse uh, 24. It says, but Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. They're saying, they saw him. This wasn't a ghost. This wasn't mass formation psychosis. They saw him. They talked with him. He was alive. But Thomas, the ever pessimistic one, I'll read it again here, says, If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands, and put my finger into the mark of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now let's give Thomas a little bit of credit here. Thomas is a modern man. He's ruled by his experience, and he's ruled by empirical evidence. Who can blame him? How many in this room have ever seen a man that went and was buried walking among us right now? I've done a lot of funerals in my day. I have yet to see one of those ones that I've done a funeral for come and greet me in my office. If they did, I would probably go check myself in. So here, science doesn't need to disprove their claim. He knows from experience. So there's a sense in which we can empathize with Thomas here in his sentiment. If I don't see the marks of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the marks of the nails, put my hand into his side, I will emphatically never believe. For Thomas, this simply can't be true. For our time together, I want to suggest to you that John put this little vignette into his gospel in order to convince us, in contrast to all of the other uncertainties that we have in this world, that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And because he did, uh, it encourages us to put our faith in Jesus Christ. So let's look at two things today. The first is that we ought to trust the truth about Jesus. We ought to trust the truth about Jesus. Uh, the Massachusetts uh, Institute of Technology, otherwise known as MIT, is arguably the best engineering school in, uh, in the country. And there's, there's cutthroat competition to get in. The average score in the SAT in math in order to get into MIT is above 700. And uh, when people are deciding who gets into MIT, it is MIT's uh, director of admissions named Marley Jones. And she's extremely uh, qualified to make such decisions because she actually has three degrees herself. Or so she claimed. On her resume, she said that she had gone to three other schools, and when MIT started getting a bit suspicious, all they needed to do was make three simple calls to find out that two of those schools had never heard of her, and one of them only had a record of her taking one class and not any degrees from it. So despite earning MIT's highest award for administrators, she was forced to resign because she had falsified her resume. 
And one major objection to the historicity of the resurrection is that it would be akin to a falsified resume. Uh, something looks really neat and cool on paper, but it, 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 people think that it just smells funny. And so the objectors will take their claim to science. This is obviously a bunch of nonsense, they'll say. Uh, it is not possible for someone to have expired and then rise from the dead fully alive. And that's a fair enough argument. It's true that none of us have seen that happen, but just because uh, we haven't seen it or experienced it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. You can't run experiments. You can't, you can't put the, the scientific method uh, to use here because you can't recreate something like this. It would have to be pulled out of the realm of miracles if that were the case, and then hence it's not a special thing anymore. So if we can't appeal to science to explain this, should we then just dismiss this fact as, as something that should be along the lines of uh, Greek or Norse uh, mythology? But I think to remove the resurrection would be more difficult. Because if it is true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, literally, then it would be the most important event in human history. A man who claimed to be fully God and fully man was tortured and executed and three days later came out of the grave without so much as a, with, without so much as a limp. That's a big deal. And we can't just dismiss that outright. And Thomas wanted to. In worldly terms, he realized how ridiculous it sounded. Verse 26 tells us that all the disciples are back together a week later, Thomas included. And you can sense his spiritual frustration. All their friends are, are all of his friends are talking about how. They saw Jesus a week ago. Do you remember seeing him? He, he hung out with us. We heard him talk. And I can imagine Thomas just sitting there thinking this has to be some cruel joke. Or perhaps all nine of these other guys here, ten of these other guys have, have gone mad. Thomas was the odd one out and there's no indication that he was going to change his mind. And then in verse 26, everything changes for Thomas. It says, a week later, the disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Wouldn't you just love to have seen Thomas's face at that moment? Mouth agape, in disbelief. And then Jesus turns specifically to Thomas. And he says in verse 27, so, uh, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Now maybe you're one of those people that really enjoys watching a show like Dr. Pimple Popper where there's just like gross stuff going on on that show. I made it through like three episodes before I got seriously nauseous and had to turn it off, and I haven't gone back since. And what Jesus does here is he asks Thomas to do something really kind of gross, but important for Thomas. 
he shows him his hands. And imagine, uh, it, it was probably his wrist that he was, uh, that he was poked through the wrist in, in, in the Roman time. They still held the wrist to being part of the hand. But can you imagine seeing sunlight through this man's hand? And he's saying, Thomas, why don't you come and, you know, put your finger in here. I can't imagine what kind of... I, I almost failed anatomy. I actually dropped it before I failed it. But I can't imagine what kind of organs were displayed in, in Jesus when he pulled open his side and said, Thomas, why don't you not just stick a finger in there. The text says, put your hand in here. He wants him to see that this is true. And the text doesn't even tell us of whether or not he touched Jesus. But his reaction is recorded in verse 28. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. This is not an expression of surprise. This is not a first century equivalent of an OMG here. He is making a confession. Everything he knew about Christ from spending time with him for three years to this very moment where he knew that he was dead, yet he was alive right in front of him. Thomas recognizes him and attributes him to being his Lord and his God. And it makes perfect sense because the Bible has attributed Jesus to being fully God and, and fully man. Two natures, one human, one divine, all meshed up together in who Jesus was. Had he not been truly human, he could not have died. Had he not been truly divine, he could not ri um, have risen from the dead. Only a person like this is worthy to be called Lord. Only a person like this can be seen as God himself. And as Lord, Thomas would offer him his full adoration, his full worship, his full self. And Jesus does not stop him from worshiping him. Notice Jesus doesn't say, oh, whoa, 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 hold on here. I'm not God. I'm just Jesus. But rather, Jesus soaks it in. And doesn't stop him. And Jesus is calling you and me to fall at his feet. And trust him as indeed Lord and God as well. He may not be in front of you physically. You may not be able to touch his wounds. But he's calling you to believe this. And this vignette is written uh, so that you can have a first-hand account of reliability of this event. Had this not happened, uh, people would have been around to object. They could have said, well, John, you're recording this, but this didn't actually happen. You need to rewrite your gospel. Had this been a hoax, then it's doubtful that these disciples would have gone out into the entire world to spread the news about Jesus and then been uh, persecuted and killed themselves. For this news. Thomas himself was so convinced by this that history tells us that he ended up as a missionary in India and ended up getting speared to death for proclaiming Jesus. This isn't a false resume. It's not fake news. You, can able, you are able to take uh, this as true truth, whatever true truth is. This really happened. 
Jesus died on the cross and he really rose from the dead. And you can trust that there was a purpose behind it for you and me to trust in Christ and be made new. And that leads us right to our second point, that we need to believe in Jesus. We need to believe in Jesus. Our society has sort of a strange understanding of the word uh, believe. In, in one sense, we think of believe as accepting something to be true. Uh, for example, there's an entire franchise with books, and I guess there's physical attractions now for Ripley's Believe It or Not, that is meant for you to see some very bizarre things that seem so strange they couldn't be true, but they are. Believe is also justified, uh, used to justify holding to an opinion. I happen to think that Chin's was the best restaurant to have ever come to Mora. I, thank you. I got an amen and a witness on that. I love it. You can disagree with me, and you might actually be justified in that disagreement. But you can't tell me that I'm wrong because it's my opinion. It's what I believe was the best restaurant around here. But there's, a, there's another, a third way, and it's used as a weird verb that's left to itself that really has no meaning. When uh, I was pastoring in Nebraska, our church was just a couple blocks down from the, the high school, and uh, the town was known throughout Nebraska for its athletic success, and they quite often make it to the state championship in basketball, so they're very well known. And uh, there'd be times when a big game would come up or a tournament would come up, and I'd, I'd turn on to Locust Street, and I would see this chain-link fence at this house that was kitty-corner from our church, and they would put styrofoam cups in the, the chain-link fence, and they would put the word believe. And I would kind of scratch my head a little bit when I would pass that sign because I, I always kind of wondered, what are, they, what are we believing here? Are we believing that we're, we're going to win? And how does that work? Does belief bring about victory? Is that why the Wahoo Warriors were so good? Because they just believed harder than the other team? So it, it, it didn't make sense. Without an object to attach to that belief, the phrase didn't make a lot of sense to me. And none of those understandings is what the Bible talks about when it talks about belief. Uh, in, in the Bible, uh, well, let's take a look at John 27, uh, verse 27 here. It says, don't be faithless, but believe. And what does he mean? Does he mean believe in Jesus in the same way that we would believe in the Easter Bunny? Yeah, all right, we got a fan here. <laughs> Good job, buddy, I like that. Um, no, the word belief in, in the New Testament should be thought more of as an attitude of trust. It is trusting in something. It is to trust in Jesus as if you would a parachute. Now, if you were up at 30,000 feet in the air at an airplane and you were going to get dropped out of the airplane, is it enough just to intellectually believe that the engineers were good in having uh, put together all of this equipment for a parachute? Well, no. The way you show trust in it is by 
pulling the ripcord as you're going down and being brought safely to the ground. And again, Thomas recognizes this in verse 28. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Now we would think that Thomas has an advantage over us. We would think that if we were able to see Jesus and to hear him, to touch him, to use all these senses that God gave us to perceive our world, that it would be easier for us to believe. But Jesus says the exact opposite in verse 29. Verse 29 says, Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So because Jesus said this, it's clear now that this passage is not only for Thomas's benefit, but for yours and for mine. Though the, through this man's skepticism and realization about who Jesus was, we have reason to believe. You see, our faith is not diminished in any way because we haven't seen him. But rather, the Bible tells us that authentic faith only comes from hearing. In Romans chapter uh, 10, it says this. It says, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message of Christ. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And at this point, I can get behind a question that some of you may be asking. I, 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 I get that this resurrection thing could have happened, but why should it give me what Peter says, glorious and, and inexpressible joy? And the answer is that this is all bound up in why Jesus came to earth to dwell among us, why he was killed, and why he was raised from the dead. It's no secret that this world is messed up. Just turn on the news, the first minute of it. The weather report even shows it to us. And our lives attest to that too. We're not much different. The, tells, the Bible tells us that we uh, have this uh, condition called sin. It's a condition that we're all born with. Uh, it is, uh, it's manifested in how we think and how we talk and in how we behave with our, with our actions. Biblically, we can identify it every time we, uh, we go against what God has told us to do or to not do in his word. And he demands perfection. And we can't deliver it. We've got too much of this condition bound in us. We sin against God and we also sin against others. And is it not true that others sin against us? And we feel the hurt of that. It's the reason our, we have relationship problems. It's the reason for addictions. For our broken families. Our anger, our violence. It's, it's the reason, parents, you were so crazy this morning trying to get your kids out the door before church started. We have disconnected from God and we feel the effects. Because God is just, he demands justice for our rebellion against him. The Bible says that that punishment is death, and not just physical. We're all going to experience that. 
But the ultimate punishment is separation from God eternally. But God in his love did not wish that we would bear the penalty of his wrath. And so he sent Jesus, who is God himself, to take on flesh, live a perfect life, sinless. And though he was sinless, he was sent to the cross to take our sin upon him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that uh, he, being God the Father, made him, made the one who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, understand the, the, the transfer that's happening. As Jesus stretched out his arm and, uh, arms and gave up his breath, he was taking our sins and our sinful nature upon himself, and he was giving us his righteousness. The just for the unjust. He gets our liabilities. We get his assets. In him, justice was satisfied, and we go free. But none of this would mean anything if it wasn't for Easter. Because three days later, after he was crucified, he rose from the dead, and he didn't come back as some half-life, spiritual zombie-type creature. He came back totally complete. And in his resurrection, he proved that he canceled our sin and defeated sin's ultimate curse, death. In him, new life is possible. You can put your past behind you. And all this is applied when we make like Thomas and believe. Trust in him. It's not enough just to intellectually assent to this. Say, yeah, I think this is true, that he is Lord and God. Notice that Thomas makes it personal. My Lord and my God. That is the great confession that Christ is calling you today. Maybe you're here today because uh, your, your mom or your grandma just wanted you to come and do your annual thing. You come to Easter, hang out, hear a message. Jesus is saying to you today, I don't want an annual pilgrimage. I want all of you. I want all of you every day. I gave my all for you. And I want you as well. In the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there's this scene in which Harrison Ford is on the cusp of getting uh, the Holy Grail. And he has to face these three uh, strenuous tasks in order to get to that, to that grail. And the first two are intellectually and physically demanding. And he is able to pass all those tests. And the third test, he comes to the cliff within a gorge. And through all of his research, he knows that there's an invisible bridge in front of him. That he must cross in order to get over this gorge, which you can't even see the bottom of. But even though he knows this through his research it obviously makes him a bit nervous. What if he's wrong? 
What if he steps in the wrong direction? This could be the end of him. And so as he is about to take that step, he puts his hands on his chest in just this frantic, nervous breath, takes one last breath, sticks a foot out, and lands on hard ground. And as soon as he does, the bridge magically comes alive before him. And he can see that this bridge is there before him. And he can walk safely to the other side. Trusting in Christ is like that. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. When we trust in Jesus, it might make us feel a bit nervous when we have to lift that leg up and take that step into the distance that we don't know if we'll land or not. But when we do take that step, suddenly our path is illuminated. Suddenly we have purpose, we have joy, we have meaning. And as we walk on that bridge of faith, we might look down from time to time. We might get a little bit of vertigo as we're walking across that bridge. But by God's grace, we're going to get to the other side. And we take that step by hearing Jesus' words to Thomas. Don't be faithful but believe. Make this Easter count. Make this Easter be the one where you finally make the great confession. My Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father.